Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash A-O-I-A-A-S. Hi, I'm Austin Wintry, and this is the Game Maker's Notebook. For this episode, I had the wonderful privilege to speak with Chance Thomas, long-running stalwart of the game industry, 25, 30-ish year uh, career as a well-known composer on projects like Lord of the Rings and Avatar and many, many, many others, Dota, and uh, has recently had the rather curious distinction of retiring fully, just laying down his arms, as it were. And I'm quite certain he's the first composer that I can think of who just arrived at that conclusion, decided they were done, and so they were done. So we speak at great length about that. We speak about his final score, which is among the most ambitious scores I've ever heard of before, if not the most, called Settlers New Allies for Ubisoft with one of the most complex interactive music systems that you can imagine. And... Uh, and then about uh, other career travails and successes he's had. Uh, he's a wonderful storyteller and thoughtful guy, and it was a, a great fun chatting with him, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation very much. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. All right. Chance Thomas, Austin we are, we are uh, going to uh, sort of collectively pray to the internet gods here that uh, our connection remains nice and stable because there is a lot I want to unpack with you. Oh, um, fantastic. It's worth saying that we had to thread the needle of your schedule to <laughs> find a time because uh, you have been... An aggressive no, globetrotter. I'm so busy not doing things. Yeah, it's a first. I'm so busy it's doing nothing. <laughs> it's truly a first. So let's just start. This is the counterintuitive place to start because I often ask folks to walk me through their their background, what gave them the love of music growing up and led them down this path towards being a composer. But I just can't resist the kind of red meat that is that topic at hand, which is you you are quite literally the first certainly the first we've had on this show, but I, I don't really know of any friends of mine or colleagues or even predecessors with very few exceptions who, who, who decided to just put down the pen, at least in a professional capacity and yeah. say, um, I, I'm going to change my priorities in life now and actually retire. It is so novel. We could <laughs> probably spend the entire time talking about that. So, Walk but me should through it be novel? The dis- That's the question. Should it be well, novel? So we'll, we'll get to take, that. Take, too, me, right? take me into that. <laughs> yeah, no, well, th- I mean, that's an amazing counterpunch, as it were. So what made you decide to retire? Because I, I, made a, I made a point of saying, 
lay down the pen professionally because I don't know anybody who can actually stop composing or being creative, especially you who kind of bristles with creativity in a lot of dimensions. So what I, what I've made you decide this? Did you always plan on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. So first of all, I have stopped composing completely. Um, after I delivered the final, yeah, after I delivered the final uh, cinematic scores for the Settlers, New Allies, it was like, I'm done. Of course, that score might have been part of the reason because I was so completely depleted. I mean, absolutely. We're going to definitely get into all kinds of depth on that score for sure. So depleted from that. Um, and I just realized I, I didn't have anything else to say musically. And I have turned my attention to other things. Um, my wife and I travel all the time now. This, this planet we live on is stunning. Everywhere. Yeah, give me a rundown of, uh, it's been amazing watching on Facebook. Wow. I forget how much time. I have a poor relationship with the clock uh, where I will glance and I'll realize, oh, wow, it's already been a week since I looked Was at X or Y. And it, yeah. yeah. And it, you have been an interesting uh, way for me to keep track of days because <laughs> you're in another country from one day to the next, it seems like, or a different continent. I mean, give me a quick rundown of just in the last few months, everywhere that you've traveled to. Wow. Oh, gosh. Um, Australia and New York City and Thailand and the Komodo Island, um, Northern California. Um, I, I could go on and on. It, it might, might get boring for our listeners. But this world is such a spectacular place. And one of the things that strikes me, Austin, and has surprised me a little bit is every new place I go to, it's like, this is the most beautiful place on planet earth. And then you go to the next place and it feels the same. You know, this is the most beautiful place too. We live. Well, and you live in Utah, which lays claim to some pretty serious contenders for most beautiful spots on the planet as well. So it's not like you're, you know, sort of uncalibrated or something and have this disproportionate reaction to beautiful vistas. (laughs) I don't know. I am calibrated, but I still have disproportionate reactions to beautiful stuff. I'm just, I'm an excitable personality. I always have been. And um, I find that the earth lights me up. And then I've I've sort of taken to photography. Um, I'm enjoying that. I'm, I'm exploring some creativity there. And then um, I still dabble in education. Like I just finished a, a book and um, mm-hmm. I'm hosting a Zoom seminar. And occasionally, like I, I'll, I'll stop in and, and speak at a conference or speak at a university um, music program. But that stuff takes, you know, minutes a week, so to speak. Did I plan <laughs> to retire? Maybe. Um, do you know Tim Larkin? You know Tim. Yeah. Yeah. So not, not particularly personally, but, but I certainly know who he is and his reputation, his work. Oh, fantastic composer, sound designer, great guy. Um, years ago, he and I were hiking through Yosemite and we were having this conversation. It's like, is composing who you are or is it what you do? 
And we both felt at the time composing was mostly who we were at the time. But then we, it's a long hike. It was like all day hiking through Yosemite up to the top of Half Dome and back. It was like, I don't know, 14, 15 hours. So we had a lot of time to dig into this topic. And we kind of got uncomfortable with that after a while. It's like, I don't think it should be that way. I don't think a composer is who I am. I think a composer is something that I do. And if it's something that I do, then it's something I cannot do at some point and still be. Was there a specific revelation in that conversation that made you flip that switch? Like, was there some lens through what you looked at it or script that you flipped that made you say, actually, you know what? Now I'm not comfortable with that assessment. Yeah, I I don't know. It might have been the fact that we were out in nature and we weren't composing and we felt completely fulfilled being out doing this Mm non-composing thing. But that's a guess. As I look back, I can't really point to a moment where the flip switch switch the switch how long ago was this when when was this hike this was like 1998 so it was a long time ago okay so all right well so that's telling then so for example the entire time that we've known each other you've been comfortable in this um perspective of it's a thing you do it's not what you are which means that retirement was not a wild impulse Right. necessarily at any stage, at least. In the, yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, but, and then there's, of course, there's the financial side of it, right? You have to be able to retire financially. Yeah, sure. And of course. That's, that's something that I've worked on. I have worked on that my whole life. And it's something that I think not particularly retirement, but taking care of business. I think that all young composers would benefit from having a, some training in business matters and um, learning about investing and learning about money and all those things. Because I did that, it brought me to a position to where when I did feel like, oh, I, I'm kind of done with this, I was able to hang it up and be free. Yeah, I <laughs> cool. business acumen... Uh, <laughs> Business acumen is definitely something that you, it doesn't, one does not have to know you particularly deeply or for very long to realize that you have a very sort of uh, sharp uh, and appreciative mind of business practice in tandem with the creative practice, which is something I resonate with because I think the two can actually feed each other. I, I find that absolutely finding economically viable solutions to a given project is itself a creative act and it starts to influence compositionally where you could go and all that sort of stuff. And so I find that, you know, that the idea of, Oh, I, you know, I don't want to talk business. Let's just talk creative. I always thought, how do you pull them apart? They've never been separable from my point of view. And you're, you're one of those that always seem to have the exact same. um, And, and that also is a glancing blow at another thing I want to circle back to later, but you, you're, you, uh, you really quite inspired me maybe five-ish years ago when you published your kind of dramatic tome about your business exploding, essentially. Uh, and and just, oh, you know. Matt. <laughs> yeah, well, and honestly, it's amazing to me that, that that was a survivable thing and that even just, you know, half a decade-ish later, you would still be in a position to be able to retire. That's truly astounding to me because I remember – 
you know, my father, as when I was growing up, always used to have this expression of water off a duck's back, where, yeah. you know, the more you can just let things not get to you and shake it off and dust yourself off and move forward, the better off you'll be and having a thick skin and all that sort of thing. And sometimes it's a lot easier said than done. And that was an instance of somebody of, of a situation where I looked at your case and thought, it would be so easy to just sit around and feel bad for oneself and not put one foot in front of the other. And, and you, you, it was, it, it was inspiring to see, but I, I want to unpack that more. We'll kind of get to that. Um, I'm just you? still so marveling at the retirement. <laughs> well, can I pause you on that for a minute? You said a couple of, of things that I really like, and I want to comment on first of all, the water off a of duck's back, right? So, if you don't take on those things like water on a duck's back, what's the alternative? Corrosive acid, you know, seeping into you and destroying yeah, or just you. drowning. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> but but I it, it can be that. so easy to think that now that even 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 as obvious as it is that that's the better way to be. We all have those kind of midnight of the soul moments where it just feels like all hope is lost. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's helpful to see examples of somebody especially in this case, because by every measure, what you went through was far worse than anything I've had to deal with. And so it was like to see somebody bounce back from that made me think, okay, well, now I have no excuse. And I think those kinds of stories are very valuable to put out into the world. So it's also a roundabout way of just my gratitude and and uh, applauding you for sharing a horrible story. Well, thank you, Austin. I appreciate that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, I love the fact that you said our creativity can feed our business. It can feed the economic side of what we do too. And well, of course, right? We're creative people. So we can create music. Why can't we create um, effective marketing? Why can't we create a nice layout on a web page? Why can't we um, create uh, some sort of financial structure that benefits our client? and also benefits us that might be a little bit outside the box. And so I love that. And and I've tried to do Is that. Is this something that you've ascribed to? Totally. Yeah, actually, you were. I think, I think you were about to basically answer what I was about to say, which is if this was something that was emergent over the course of your career, or if from the earliest days you had that more kind of eye in the sky, all these seemingly disparate parts are actually one whole you know, it's funny because as you mentioned that, it, it makes me think maybe I'm just kind of a control freak, you know, because early in my career, I wanted to write every part. I wanted really to play tight. in every part. I wanted to conduct. I wanted to mix and produce. It's like there are so many cool things to do, and I wanted to do them all. Yeah. Um, in, in my studio, I have some portraits up on the wall. Um one of them is a painting of Leonardo da Vinci. And, you know, there's all, John Williams is up there. Michael Jordan is up there. Steve Jobs is up there. You know, there's just this, this collage of people who have achieved greatness in some part of their life. And it, it's been an inspiration for me. And when I look at Leonardo da Vinci, I think, here's a man who broke the mold on saying you have to specialize. no. You don't have to specialize. Mm -hmm. You can explore lots of different things and maybe even have some success in a lot of different things. So that, that, that I think, has always been part of my fabric. 
I I can relate deeply. Uh, it's sort of a little bit hidden uh, out of frame, but over my shoulder here is a portrait of Jerry Goldsmith and next to him, Leonard Bernstein. Nice. And I've always uh, relished Goldsmith for that exact reason is he, he, he was fluent in about a hundred different musical languages, uh, including yeah. a one or two that he, I would argue wrote and created. And, um, uh, that, that's been very, um, inspiring for me as well, because same thing, I, I was always interested in trying new things and, and putting myself in kind of, creatively compromised situations where you just had to sort of art your way out of it as it were. And he was like that in a way, you know, whereas you have John Williams has mastered this very specific technique and Mm -hmm. and not really strayed from it. Goldsmith is sort of the diametric opposite. And I, I resonated. I mean, they're both geniuses who have inspired me a lot, but to me that Goldsmith versatility was something. And, and it's the same takeaway as your Da Vinci everyone telling you, you should find your shtick. And yeah. I thought, well, I kind of like Goldsmith's shtick of not having a shtick. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, and, uh, and you look at your career, you look at the, the, the body of work that you've produced up to this point, And there is a lot of diversity in it. You know, there's a lot of variety. There, it it could have come from a number of different composers. And the fact that it all came from you, I, I love that. Well, that's, that's, that's very kind. Um, but I will not let you make this about me. Uh, and uh, as kind hey, of, I you said of an observation as that is. So. <laughs> well, I, I was that was semi honest. I'm going to dictatorially speak in a very, uh, uh, you know, engaging, uh, equitable yeah. way. But um, but no, no. I, I mean, I, but truthfully, there's just so much that I'm excited to to talk about. And so uh, let me ask you this. I, I won't I won't belabor the retirement issue, but it's just so fascinating because um, uh, it's just so it's just so rare, particularly when somebody there's a difference between the composers that just found themselves struggling to secure opportunities and kind yeah. of retired by default. There have been a few of those over time. You think of some of the um, the great Hollywood composers, you know, the David Raxson and Elmer Bernstein and Leonard Rosenman and folks who, you know, you look at the last 10 years of their career or of their life, they were, Elmer is actually not a great example, but a quasi, a quasi good example, but they, they were kind of forced for lack of a better way to put it, into retirement on account of just they weren't really getting hired. I don't think they would have said no. They just nobody really kind of wanted them to. Um, and that's so distinctly different from just bringing down the the garage door, as it were, and putting and, yeah. and taking down the open for business sign indefinitely. Do you see yourself possibly... 10 years from now, after every you've you've successfully Lewis and Clarked every map, every inch of the earth, and you've said, uh, as if that were possible in a lifetime, but yeah. you know what I mean? Um, you've just globetrotted. Now you think, I'm, I'm ready to retire from retirement. Do you see that as a possibility? Uh, is that something you remain open to? Or does it feel like there's a, there's a comfort in being definitive, I am done? Never say never, right? Um, I mean, I've still got my keyboard. I haven't sold my equipment yet. Yeah. Um, But I don't envision it. Mm. I don't envision coming to a point where 
I want or feel the need to do that again. Do you see yourself? um, I could see, I could see you making a kind of, um, I don't know how to phrase it, a sort of retirement hobby as it were out of adjacent things. For example, uh, there are folks who, you know, they'll own a business that they kind of keep tabs on. They let other people do day to day, but you know, like running a recording studio in Salt Lake or something, I could see where you go. I'm not really in it day to day. I'm retired, but it's a fun thing to be able to pop into the studio, see what people are doing once every six months. You see any version of that coming up or is it just, you know, I really, I really don't have any interest. I think the closest, you know, I've, I've got my little record label online and of course, or yeah. not my record label, just my online gallery, right? Where I sell right. my soundtracks, and occasionally I'll do a, I'll do a Zoom seminar. You know, maybe one or two a year. That's about as much as I think I want to do. Um, mm. Retirement is great, and I, I don't think once you let that genie out of the bottle, <laughs> I don't think yeah. there's a lot of success in putting it back in. At least for me, and there are so many other things and people and causes that I'm starting to get involved with and give some of my time and energy to that. I don't know. I, I have loved. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, let me just say this because I don't want anybody listening to our conversation to think, well, yeah, you know, why did that guy get into music anyway? I loved music. I mean, music lit me up like nothing else from the time <laughs> I was a kid until almost the day I retired, maybe six months before I retired. But I mean, that's a lot of decades of loving music, listening to it, making it, writing it, producing it, working with artists, working with musicians, working with, you know, creative directors and and uh, game designers and producers. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And then it was like, boom, boom. It was like going 100 miles an hour all across the country and then hitting a brick wall. I know that yeah. sounds strange, but it was almost like, okay, I'm done. I, I I reach. I took my little cup of inspiration for inspiration. I stuck it down into the barrel that we have inside of us to draw out inspiration from, and it was empty. You know, it was like the day before it had been almost full, and now it was gone. It was like literally. You talked about earlier in the conversation. You talked about flipping a switch. This was like flipping a switch. It was almost like my my soul said to me, "Okay, you're done with that." Next. Well, I, I admire, I think it takes a courage to listen to that voice uh, because especially as someone who interacts with young students all the time, I think some of them have a rude awakening of that waiting for them immediately out of school because they look at the realities of what it is to be a composer and all, yeah. you know, the juggling of the business, the constant uncertainty, the, the sort of, um, uh, what in today's term we would call the gig economy lifestyle of it, where you yeah. you go project to project, paycheck to paycheck. There's very little alternative to that um, if you want to write music for a living. Sure. Uh, and most people are going to likely struggle. It's a tough grind and you can be at the top of the world and still be struggling with it. 
And I think some of them, that's very abstract. And then the moment they have any contact with the reality of it, it could be six months out of a university program or something, they very quickly discover, this is not for me. I don't like this. But they won't let that voice be heard because they've got all this student loan debt and they've got all this kind of ego built up around the idea of it's my identity. It's not what I do, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. so they, they'll, they'll basically just force themselves to live a life that they're quite unhappy with for a while until eventually they kind of flame out. And I always try to say to those folks preemptively, not knowing which in the group that applies to some yeah. subset of a given class of students, I say, you're developing a set of skills right now that are applicable outside of that composer's chair. You know, there's orchestrators, oh, yeah. there's copyists, there's conductors, there's engineers that broadly speaking have a lower gear lifestyle than what the composer has to endure. You can work in 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 collaboration with a composer and whatnot and not have to be hustling quite the same way and, and et cetera, et cetera. And maybe that's for you. And just don't let that ego say, no, I went to school to be a composer and I refuse to sort of betray that. I think yeah. so. just because I've had that conversation a bunch of times over the last decade or so, I've come to really appreciate when somebody hears that voice and they actually go, you know what? I'm going to listen. I'm done. And just, I could put a button on, I, I promise not to solely focus on retirement, but, um, uh, well, but I do think it, that it is uh, an astounding thing and it's, it's courageous in its way. It seems like it's really puzzled you, right? You're like, Wait, how? Well, what? <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. it's just because I, 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 uh, you know, my, I, I always had the fantasies of like the the French composer George Delarue, who was uh, uh, in the 1993 or so was conducting his score to the movie. Uh, I think it was Rich in Love, and uh, finished the final cue, and then collapsed and died in front of the orchestra right on the podium. Or Bernard Herrmann dying in his hotel room after the last day of taxi driver sessions. And I always thought, yeah. there you go. That's the way to that's do it. Cool. It's like, yeah, that's I can't Maybe help John but have Williams. this romanticized view. Yeah, I mean, John Williams is still going. He, he's in his Yeah, 90s. exactly. He'll bury us all, it seems like. And that's, I, I love that for them, right? And I think there was a time when I thought, well, how can I, how can I ever not love composing music. And for what was it like 40 years? Um, I never reached that point, And then I did. I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the best and the worst then, because I do, I do want to really have a chance to unpack the settlers. Um, uh, Cause I, I've, I do, you know, you've worked on so many just massive undertakings of scores of avatar and Lord of the Rings. And, and, um, uh, obviously running your running big, huge, uh, as it were, and, 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 uh, your, your, your whole, um, uh, sort of production, um, and, 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 and what you were doing sort of before games, I actually know sort of nothing about. So I really want to, I want to make sure to, to at least tap into all of those, but I think it's, it's really worth, uh, since we started on retirement, I guess we're going to just sort of reverse chronologically right. and, and we're going to end with, you know, the story of your conception. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so the curious uh, let's, let's talk about the settlers. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, because as you've been very patient with me the last however long year or two where I was, I was like, 
frothing at the mouth to know more about how this outrageously ambitious interactive system works. As somebody who lives for that, and it's the it's the cornerstone of my passion for game scoring is in interactive music design. Um, you really caught my attention with this idea of just tens of thousands of files uh, all uh, interconnecting, and I and I'm very grateful that you sent over your uh, the the you know, 25 ish page sort of walkthrough of, of the whole thing is absolutely amazing. It's also worth preemptively stating that this is yet another example of a water off a duck's back where, although I guess in a sense that took the form of retirement, but uh, the, the fact that you put everything into this. Um, let's let's only don't give to it away it, yet. Hold on, hold on, hold okay, on. Okay, okay. All right, yeah, don't, okay. T just tell the story as if I don't know anything. Don't give that away yet. <laughs> okay, okay, great. Good call. I know where you were going. Let's let's hold yeah. that for a, for a little suspense towards the end. Oh, well, tell me where the project first came from and what made you decide to go this granularly dynamic. Okay. All right. So um, let's go back a long time. Do you know Benedict Oime? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Ubisoft. At Ubisoft. So this was probably, I don't know, 2005, something like that. That might not be the right year, but she and I um, ended up sitting together at a game sound con during a talk that wasn't especially engaging. So we ended up talking to each other. And Benedict is a delightful woman. And when I found out she was a music supervisor at Ubisoft, I thought, okay, this is great. She can become a friend and maybe she can become a, a business associate as well. And we stayed in touch off and on over the years. She never quite found a project that felt right for me. One of the reasons is, as you know, um, I always chose not to work on M-rated games. And she would right. approach me several times. Well, here's this game. And it's like, well, Benedict, what rating are they targeting? And um, so we never fight, quite found the right project. But I really liked um, her taste. I liked the way that she talked about game audio. And so when I did my textbook a few years ago, I invited her to contribute a sidebar, which she did. And it was great. And fast forward to 2018. I get a call from her and she says, you know, all that interactive stuff you talk about in your textbook. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she says, can you actually do any of it? <laughs> and I said, well, of course I can. Right. Yes, I can. And she says, can you do more than what you wrote about? I was like, what do you mean? And she says, well, there's this uh, developer in Germany and their audio director has a really ambitious idea about the music for this game series. And um, I want to suggest you uh, as one of the composers to consider. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I love the interactive design and um, I've had some experience with it. Let's go for it. So I went through the auditioning process, got hired, and they brought me out to Dusseldorf, Germany for a two or three day, basically a brainstorming session. And the right. audio director at the time was a guy named Stefan Randelschofer. And this was really his brainchild. He says, I want to do 
a granular procedural music score based on acoustic guitar. And I want you a chance to go figure out how to do that. <laughs> it's like, wow. Do you know what gave him that idea? That is so specific and not terribly so common for, for someone. No, well, I mean, because even we can even we can even unpack the idea. It wasn't just guitar in a generic sense. He had specific guitarists that yes. he had yes. in his ear. You know that he had a, a yes. specific play style and types of right. guitars. I mean, this is inordinately specific. It was, it was, and you know that sort of speaks to as a composer the range of personalities and challenges that we face. As, you know especially in the freelance world, like you were saying, because one, one producer might come in and say, uh, yeah, whatever, do what you do, whatever you think. And we've had that happen. And, and then this guy was coming saying, here's exactly what I want. So I think that he felt that looking at the artwork of the world, looking at its setting, he felt like acoustic guitar would create a nice vibe for that world. Um, specifically fingerstyle acoustic guitar. So, but we had this whole list of uh, objectives. You know, the, the score had to be um, procedural. It had to be generated from little bits and pieces that you could assemble on the fly in lots of different ways so that we could avoid that bane of repetition that you always get in gaming that makes you want to turn off the music. But it had to sound natural, too. It had to sound organic. That was another one of the objectives. Uh, he wanted it based on fingerstyle guitar. Um, some other instruments, some other colors could be brought in. Now, I can't remember. There were like six or seven key objectives that we had. Um, and as I went home from that, those days of brainstorming, I thought, all of this is easy except for one thing. How do you actually make it sound like music how do you give vector right how do you give musical vector to this software that's just grabbing bits and pieces and assembling it on the fly and man i i, I wrestled with that austin it's like god i don't know how to solve that problem and one day i was noodling around at the keyboard and I had a flashback to when I was in college. And when I was in college, I supported myself and my wife by playing piano in nightclubs, piano bars, country clubs, restaurants, that kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, you know I, I had to cover a lot of time. And sometimes <laughs> I would just improvise. And I got pretty good at improvising on the piano. And so... I'm thinking about the settlers. I'm thinking about how do you find creative vector for this score? And it occurred to me, I had this light bulb moment. It's like, well, I must have some kind of harmonic probability table in my mind when I'm improvising. Because if I'm on an A minor seven, chances are I'm going to mostly go to a D minor seven next, right? You know, I might come up to an E flat and then drop back down to the D minor seven. But to be musical in the way that I like, there were tendencies that I was responding to in my brain. And I thought, OK, I can take that out 
and create a probability table, which says, if I'm playing this chord, and I have this, this group of chords to choose from, the odds are 80% that I'm going to play this chord, and maybe only 40% that I'm going to go to this chord, and maybe only 10% that I'm going to go to this chord. And that was the light bulb moment. I thought, if we can set this whole score up to where whatever chord is selected, the next chord is chosen by a properly tested and well-designed and fine-tuned probability table, then at least we can get the harmony right. And if we can get the harmony right, if we can get harmonic movement to go in a way that feels like it was intended to be that way, you have a chance at delivering music to your audience rather than just... So let me ask you, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a great insight. Um, and you cover it very well uh, in the book. Um, uh, you know, it, it kind of the 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 breakdown of how you kind of conceived of this, and it's actually very clear. And it's one of those that, like many great uh, sort of systematic concepts, it's it's actually quite sort of elegant in its simplicity. It it doesn't feel yeah, sort of like this ultra convoluted set of rules. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, one thing I'm curious about just to get a little bit into the weeds is yeah. I, I love this use of the word vector. The, the word, the word that I often use that I think is for all intents and purposes, synonymous in this case would be trajectory uh, yeah. where music doesn't just exist perpetually in the moment, but great music is like a great storyteller that's leading you somewhere yeah. uh, and has kind of, the highs and lows of a, of a, of a narrative arc. And so harmony alone, it won't fully get you there. You would need additional right. parameters to be able to say, okay, the next chord after this a minor seven, there's a 80% chance of it being a D minor seven as the next chord. But I would imagine that that's different if it's the first versus it's the 12th chord that there's a, there's a over time, those percentages are going to change based on where you are within the kind of overall structure. Right. So right. I'm curious how you dealt with, with that so that it, because if you zoom out far enough, it would end up having the same problem as any other generative system where even yeah. with well-conceived probability tables, you're still yeah. going to on the whole be wandering in the woods as after a while. Yeah. So how do you solve for that? And, and, and related the other um, um, well, let's start with there. There's plenty more to ask. So yeah. how do you kind of deal with those challenges? So first of all, there are two giant branches in the settler's score, and the procedural branch is only one. The other branch is right. event-driven music. Yeah, cinematics so, and things like that. Not just cinematics, but also combat and um, right. tackling objectives and meeting people that you want to meet and little um, sparkly moments, right, that happen in a game. Also, we should say, we should realize that most video games do not have the same sort of dramatic arc as a film, right, or a TV show. Yeah, certainly not. 
they they're more of um well at least this game i mean different games are, are are structured differently there are some which actually ramp up and ramp down over the course of the experience this one was more about i'm going to explore i'm going to build things i'm going to have little happy moments i've got campaigns where i've got to go attack an enemy and take over their village right and so the event driven music helped us in that regard because when there were moments that were more dramatically um, immediate, more dramatically um, intense, where the stakes were higher, right? We leaned into the event driven music. And that was more like traditional game music. You'd have yeah. introductions, right? You'd have um, blocks of, of loops that could like, move around and um, adjoin each other as they played through. You had different layers that you could add and subtract. You had outros, you had stingers, all those kinds of things. But then back to the procedural music, we I created four different moods within the procedural score. There was a neutral mood, there was a sad mood, there was a tense mood, and there was a happy mood. And so all of those moods got their own their own harmonic probability tables, their own melodies, their own percussion underpinning, their their own orchestral layers, right? And so here's here's a simple example. Let's say <clears throat> you're um, you're working on your village. You've completed. You've just completed a building. So we're probably in the neutral mood because we're just kind of. There, there's no emotional stakes while you're just building up your, your right. village. So kind of in this neutral mood, it's nice, it's relaxing. You finish building a keep or a tower, and there's a nice little musical flourish that accompanies that. We had to know what, um, what chord the flourish was beginning on and ending on. We had to know how many measures it was <clears throat> so that we could plug that in to the procedural part. So... <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna go um, kind of high level, then I'm gonna get into the details for a minute. So we're in our neutral mood. We have our uh, magic moment of finishing this castle, which is from the event-driven lifts music. We go back to the procedural branch. Now, while we're doing this, an enemy appears over the hill, and we spot him. Now we switch from the neutral um, procedural music into the tension procedural music. So now we've raised the emotional stakes a little bit, right? So as we decide that we're going to go and attack that that enemy army, now we switch into the combat music, which is an introduction which kind of rolls you up into that combat battle. Then you get combat music. We go, we fight, we win. Guess what? We conquer their territory. Now we're into the happy procedural music until we come back and then we drop back into the neutral procedural music. So all of these different, I, I can describe them as buckets, I can describe them as different swimming pools full of assets, all of these different um, tools allow us to sort of Frankenstein a dramatic sounding score together. And it's not perfect, mm. but it's really good. 
<laughs> what would you, what, when you say it's not perfect, is there any consistent uh, sort of tripwire that it would potentially fall victim to? Because it feels awfully robust. Uh, you know, robust. again, <laughs> yeah, it's worth, because it's worth highlighting that when designing these systems, obviously we're quite beholden to the game mechanics. If we design some amazing interactive system for an actual interaction that can't happen in the game or happens so vanishingly rarely that the player won't experience it, then we've fundamentally kind of missed the mark or we're, we're just operating in some abstract and not really doing our jobs. And yeah. sometimes games have, you know, you can dream of something that, it seems amazing, but the game just won't support it. And you're like, oh, well, right. oh, well. Uh, that happens more often than not. So what, to what do you attribute the kind of imperfections that were, that keep it from making you feel like it's perfect. It's, it is the, it is, it is Michelangelo's David. Well, first of all, I'm no Michelangelo. So let's just get that out of the way right up front. <laughs> well, future generations, it's chances settlers. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think when when we first started talking about this, you mentioned that um, a single probability table, let's say for one of the moods, might be great for a while, but then you might need to change your um, change the percentages change the chords that you're choosing from as you get deeper and deeper into the experience. I like that idea. That's, that's cool. I think that, Oh man, that's, that's where somebody could go next and maybe, you know, right. fine tune this a little bit better. We, we solved the problem of stagnancy, right? We solved the problem of musical stagnancy by creating four different moods, you know, with their own, asset buckets, their own probability tables, their own specific chords, right? And then having this other branch of event-driven music and figuring out a way to sort of stitch them together. And it worked pretty good. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think a different type of game. Um, yeah, was, that, might, that's exactly what I was about to say. I think... Yeah. I think in a sense, the the quest the answer to the question I asked about how to avoid it kind of in a sense meandering endlessly is solved. Not the music didn't need to solve that because the gameplay solves that for you. Since it's not like you would play for sixteen straight hours before yeah. one of these other intervening like combat or a mission uh, objective, kind of something that will forcibly take it into something briefly yeah. more linear or otherwise, if nothing else, yeah. something different from what it is that's right. solving that problem for you. You know, you're, if you, if you develop a system that says, okay, after, after X amount of time, now we shift to this probability table. If X time yeah. never arrives, it's a completely fruitless endeavor. So yeah. it, it, it sounds yeah. like the game kind of took care of the first thing that, that I would have clocked as the, as a concern and which is why I would never come up, which is why you say, Oh, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, someone should try that next. <laughs> we need a different game to support it from the For one sure. that you were working on. So it's For worth sure. also highlighting. There's a. It's actually quite uh, surprising the email you have from your suffering guitarist uh, printed in the 
um, in the book, in the chapter, uh, explain that, just tell that story of, of sure. the brute force required of recording this amount of material. Well, bef- and, and before what, we even get the to toll that, it took. Yeah. Before we even get to that, let's, let's lay out the fact that since this score needed to be, um, granular, since they wanted to never have it be the same, potentially go on forever. We had to record a lot of assets. So you got the probability table. In the neutral mood, there were 13 chords that I chose. And for structural, um, for the ability to create structure, we had to figure out, okay, how are we going to record things for these chords? You know, you don't just like, oh, yeah, here's a chord, here's a chord, there's a chord. No. So we said, okay, they can be four beats long, eight beats long, or 12 beat long, 12 beats long. Okay. And then we had to create um, arrangement structure too. The bass layer was acoustic guitar. It could be a strummed chord or it could be a finger picked chord in four, eight, or 12 beat lengths. So then we had to match all the other parts of the arrangement to those lengths. But not only that, um, I decided to introduce some variety into how the finger picking was. So there were different finger picking patterns based on triplets right. or based on sixteenths or based on eighths, right? So you had pattern one, pattern Which are two. effectively chosen at random. Like once we've landed on which chord the system yes. pulls, it then exactly. has a randomization subset. Uh, yeah. It does. Okay. It does. But let's say you chose pattern two, which is maybe a triplet-based um, accompaniment in the guitar. Well, now we're also having to choose pattern two from the orchestral layer, the percussion layer, and the right. melody layer. The melody layer was where um, the assets just exploded, proliferated, because melody is the thing that your ear pays the most attention to. Melody is the thing that's most memorable. And so with um, with each chord length, four, eight, and 12, right, I had three patterns for each of those, right? For each pattern, I did five melodic fragments, right? So that means you've got 15 melodic fragments for your four beat chord. You've got 15 more that are different for your eight beat chord, and you got 15 more for your 12 beat chord. I think I'm doing the math right. So that's one chord out of 13. Right, yeah. For it one take mood, much to realize how yeah. quickly this thing explodes. Yeah. yeah. So, and there were four different moods, right? So the musicians who had to come in and record all those fragments. I mean, it was like doing a sample session. Yeah. You know, it's like, which are just notoriously session. taxing. It's very taxing. And, um, the guitar player that I ended up hiring, um, is actually the world renowned, fingerstyle guitarist Antoine Dufour. And he is such an artist and he's a perfectionist. He's also really funny and fun to work with. Um, But I would send him, you know, like, here's 600 melody fragments to record on your acoustic guitar. And it was so tedious. And yeah, I can only imagine. Because you were going from this little fragment to this little fragment to this little fragment, the timing 
you couldn't be sloppy in your playing, right? Because yeah. you couldn't know how to catch up on the next measure or anything like, you know, musicians tend to yeah. do. So mm-hmm. everything was so meticulous. And one day I get this email from him and he's like, I, I just got to tell you, my mental state is not good. <laughs> he said, I feel like I'm climbing Mount Everest naked or, you know, he used all these horrible um, uh, metaphors for to describe how this experience was just eating at his soul. And he even said at one point, he said, I would rather spend three months in jail than do this. And he says, and I'm not kidding. He said, wow. And <clears throat> so I called him immediately. No, I emailed him immediately and called him the next morning, but I emailed him immediately because he had just emailed me. And I was like, Antoine, please stop. Take whatever time you need. You know, Get away from it. Go out with your wife, go for a swim, whatever. Just get away from it. And I'll call you tomorrow morning. And I called him the next morning. We talked and we talked and I shared with him, you know, some of the struggles that some of the other musicians had gone through. I had a violinist um, who was recording all the violin parts. And he finally got to a point where it's like, you know, I called him up to start doing uh, violin for some of the um, points of interest and some of the um, event driven music. He's like, I'm out. I, I can't do it. it. It's so tedious and so taxing. I mean, I think I mentioned this in the book, and I don't know why I remembered this. Bass flute is not the most common flavor that you use in a score. And I had 154 pages of bass flute music <laughs> for this poor woman. And you're the only person to make a flute player just sell their bass and, and never want to play it again. <laughs> you know what happened? She actually, she actually invented a stand that could sit, hold her flute, you know, right where she needed it at the level when she was sitting in the chair so that she didn't have to bear the weight of it. Right. All she had to do was, um, you know, push the, the stops and that saved her, you know, cause That's... you know, her neck and her shoulders and her arms were getting oh, so yeah. Sweet. I mean, it's, 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 it's hundreds of hours of record. I mean, over what time frame was all this recording taking place and over what time frame prior to that was the writing process yeah the the writing um happened in 2019 most of the procedural writing happened during 2019 in the first part of 2020 and which is interesting because when i was finally ready to start recording uh bringing the um, solo musicians into the studio we were in 2020 and COVID hit Right. It was like March yeah. and April of 2020 when I started recording. <clears throat> and, you know, that was its own kind of odd thing. We didn't really know that much about it. Um, so we're all in our masks, oh, yeah. you know, like wiping everything off with Clorox rags. And but, yeah, it was it was quite the undertaking. And then, there was and, the- and then so then and, and- how long of a period from start to finish was the actual pr- like production? Cause it's just, it, it's so much to keep track of. And you, and you do mention in the book how you had to kind of work out some new methods just to be able to manage like the mixing yeah. pipeline and all that sort of thing. But yeah. how, just in terms of months, you know, when you started tracking say early 2020, when did you actually finally kind of have the last files dialed in? 
Um, I wish I had something. I wish I had that stuff written down in front of me. Unfortunately, I, I didn't get any notes for this conversation. So some of it might be a little fuzzy. I know we recorded all of 2020 um, and into 2021. I think it was in 2021 that we went to Nashville and we, we also recorded all of the orchestral parts. Um, Antoine finished up with all of his procedural and event-driven music because the game was originally supposed to release in fall of 2021. Right. So we had everything done. I think that's the right date. We had everything done by late summer, early fall of 2021. I think they were targeting an October release. Everything was in the game. It was working brilliantly. And then I got a note from the audio director and he says, hey, um, this was probably late October. He says, um, can we do a Teams call? I'm like, why? I'm done. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> always we, has an ominous. He says, there's some things we probably ought to talk about. And so we had this Teams call and he says, um, Ubisoft has canceled the game. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, this was like, I mean, I just been through this big buildup of huge sound post-production only to have it burned to the ground by fraud in the investment company and then poured all of this creativity and all this intelligence and all this blood, sweat and tears with all these musicians into the settlers you know, the world's largest procedural music score kind of thing. And they said, yeah, it's canceled now. I'm like, face now, palm. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And something that I can't wrap my brain around, and you may not know or may not be at liberty to say, but if you were expecting the game to be coming out around October and that's when they called you to say that, that means that they had a finished game. Yeah. That they decide to pull the pl- normally cancellations occur on the vine where the, the higher ups look at it and they go, we don't think this will achieve the quality bar it needs to. Even if we pour all these extra resources and time into it, it'll never get there. Better to cut our losses. It's truly yeah. rare outside of a corporate acquisition kind of setting for a finished thing to go into the trash bin. What happened? Are you are so, even allowed to say why they did? Yeah, I, I mean, there's some stuff that I just don't know. So I'm probably safe in saying what I do know. Um, they probably, and this is speculation, they probably arrived at that decision back in August or September. Um, I see. And this is all public. This part, what I'm about to say is public knowledge. Um, they sent the game out to the press. And particularly the German press where the development studio is based and where Settlers has a long, long history of, um, I mean, the Settlers is, is, is a deeply German game in some ways. Right. And the German press crucified it. I see. So I think in responding to that, probably back in August or September, I don't know, they made the decision, well, this is our core audience, right? The people in Germany, the people in that part of Europe. Um, if they hate it, we've probably made the wrong game. And so um, I, I'm a little bit further down the 
the food chain, right? As a contractor. Yeah, of course, yeah. So it took him a while to get around to bringing me up to speed. So I was pretty, pretty down about that, but it's like, well, it worked great. We built it. I poured a lot of money into local music economies during the COVID crisis where most musicians (laughs) were not. I mean, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so it's like, well, we did some good in the world. We had some fun. We did some cool stuff. I guess that's it. About three months later, um, well, let's well, actually just pause on that really quick. How long did okay. it take you, again, just in this theme of you have a very powerful ability to water off a duck's back about everything. This truly is the going 100 miles an hour and hitting a brick wall. You've just put so much energy and passion into a thing and and suffered. I mean, like you said, you're getting musicians emailing you saying, I unironically would rather be in jail. You, It's yeah. hard to give more of oneself than the kind of scenario that you're describing only for it to blow up in your head. How long, uh, blow up in front of you, I mean, how long from that call and this undoubtedly just devastating, I think you call it soul destroying or something like that in the book, um, before you come to this conclusion, well, I guess we did some good. We put some money into the economy and you give this very chance response of, oh, well, there's plenty of upside to it. You know, I'm still breathing. I got my health. There's all the, all when you, all the positives that can be seen. You are human still, I assume. Yeah. How did you, how long did it take you to kind of shift gears to that more optimistic digestion of this? It's, it's an interesting thing for me to try to, self-analyze. Um, I think I went there first, right? I think that's my- it's Like a defense mechanism. Yeah, exactly. It's my years in the business, um, knee-jerk defense mechanism that I've developed. So I go there first, but then you have grief because that was a, that was a significant loss. And so you go through the stages of grief as you're trying to process this and and grief is funny, you'll be just fine. And then in the middle of your day, something swells up and you're like, that really sucks that that happened. I can't believe it, you know, and you get really oh, no. down and you need to go talk to your therapist or what. <laughs> and so I, it was, it was not linear at all. It was very jagged. Um, yeah, but, that, that I get. Yeah. But, but there, the, I have to say this too. Not only is it a defense mechanism, but there's just part of my personality, part of my nature, part of my spirit that just is resilient. And I like to be a grateful person. I I work on that. I work on trying to see what I have to be grateful about. And so, you know, after doing that for 58, 59, 60 years, it sort of becomes part of your natural way of being. And so that was a big um, natural reaction to be happy for what happened and to see the good. But I also had to deal with the grief as it jaggedly came up and poked into that veneer. And it's not a veneer as it poked into my heart um, over the next probably three to four months. So then the story has a twist at that point. It does. About three months into 20, 
22. Is that right? Uh, I a don't year, know. I might, a year and change ago. No, I, I might be getting my dates wrong. Maybe, maybe. I'm sorry, Austin. Some of the dates are a little fuzzy. So anyway, let's set dates aside. That's okay. I'm here for the emotional ride more than the archiving yeah, right, right. for the Wikipedia right. page. So if, if people want, I can tell you, if you get this book that we're talking about, which is my upcoming memoir, Making It Huge in Video Games, all the dates are right. But we're going to put the dates aside for this discussion. That's fine. Um, a few months after the game was canceled, the audio director called me and he said, hey, Ubisoft is making a new game and they want all of your music and all of the music system that was developed for this Settlers game that got canceled. And we want to put it in the new game that we're making. And my reaction was mixed. You know, on the one side, it's like, oh, great. All that work wasn't wasted in terms of being able to expose it to the world. But you're going to take everything we did for this one very specific game and kind of shoehorn it into something else? Is that yeah, the best very idea? Yeah, red flag with that. You know, is mm-hmm. that the best idea? Um, but as it turns out, they were making a new Settlers game. They were, you know, making a new version of the game that they canceled. So at least stylistically, um, voice-wise, the music should fit. Right. So they worked on that game. Um, We did new cinematics for it, uh, 40 new cinematics, I think. We did 30 points of interest, which are basically just like cinematics, um, totally linear. And that was new music that then I wrote and recorded. and that game was supposed to come out. That game was supposed to come out in the fall of 2022, I think. Same sort of thing happened. I got notified that they were not going to release the game. They were going to work on it some more. There, this was just a postponement, and they were targeting a. February or March 2023 release for this additionally polished game. And then I had to do some more little music add-ons for that. I can't remember what they were. So I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like, okay, they took my music. They took the music system. They're taking time to polish it. This is going to be great. Except it's not. Because in shoehorning this massive music system into this new approach to the game, they pulled a lot of stuff out that we had done for the original game. And I said, look, let me come out to Stuttgart. No, that's not right. Dusseldorf. Let me come out to Dusseldorf and I'll sit with your, um, I'll sit with your audio designers and implementers and we'll try to make the best out of this and you know ubisoft wouldn't spring for for that i finally got to see footage of the game that they were going to release it's a beautiful looking game the gameplay seems to work really well but the music system was really dumbed down and that crushed me (laughs) 
<laughs> that was almost uh, Do you have a sense of even why they would dumb it down? Because it feels like I could understand them not justifying the cost to build it up to begin with, but they've inherited a fully operable yes. system. It doesn't, it's like, it, I don't understand the well, reason to not just use it if the gameplay well, is similar enough. Because, so well, and that's part of the issue is the music system, all the hooks, right, that went into, and I, I, I guess that's getting into stuff that I, I can't talk about, but the... Um, the music system was designed to respond to a certain universe of gameplay and they went and they broke up and they changed that universe. And so the ability to seamlessly connect, that's why I use the word shoehorn, right? Yeah. Um, That makes sense. To take something that doesn't really fit and try to cram it into a smaller package. um, Yeah. 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 Basically just the gameplay, the gameplay itself had the, changed. The music system was designed to respond to a thing yes. that didn't exist anymore. Exactly. Um, that I get. That so, I get. Uh, and so I've seen quite a bit of footage of the the game, and um, some of the things that we planned, they work great. They work just as we were planned, as we had planned to do, and some are kind of broken, and that's frustrating. But the redeeming quality or the redeeming uh, thing about this score is when I put together the original soundtrack album, I followed yeah. all of the rules that we had created for the procedural and um, event-driven parts of the score. So as you go and listen to the soundtrack album, that is the musical experience we delivered in the original game that got canceled. And so yeah, as I, I liked back, that as your epilogue. Yeah. And as I go and I, as I listen back to that, it's, it's very satisfying and I'm thrilled to be able to uh, give that out into the world in, in the hopes that people will um, enjoy it as, as it was intended. Yeah. And, and you kind of alluded to at the beginning though, that, that this project these roller coaster experiences did in a sense uh break you on some level and make you suddenly think about retirement i mean did you start this project thinking i might be on the verge of retirement and maybe one one more time up at bat uh will be sufficient well, or really truly was just the the tribulations of this that made you go okay i think so you know that that's a that's a fair question and my wife and i have kicked that around a little bit and she says her her observation as a you know the closest objective observer in my life she says it just completely burned you to a crisp and she's not wrong um i mean how could it not i mean it's so uh, it's impossible to make a system like that when not coming from a place of caring because you went so far beyond the sort of minimum viable delivery that <laughs> obviously it's propelled by a passion and a desire to really kind of plant a flag with something novel and, and right. profound. Uh, and for that to blow up in your face, you know, it's like being betrayed by a family member is infinitely worse than than a random stranger on the street about whom you have no other expectations. You know, when you give everything to something 
that matters to you in this way and it it kind of blows up or it falls apart uh, it's a million times more heartbreaking uh, i don't again i don't want to uh, feel like i'm kind of no uh, let, let me just say I, we shouldn't say that it completely blew up let's say that it had its kneecaps broken <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it completely blew up until it was put back together in a manner befitting shrapnel trying to recreate the thing that was blown up. I mean, it sounds like it really yeah. did kind of follow that trajectory, you know, like the the Japanese pottery with the with the kind of gold-laced uh, 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 reconstruction of a shattered pot. I can't remember the term for that, but that's a particular pottery tradition of of trying to rebuild something that has been broken um, but, um, in any case, uh, not to, to dwell on the kind of car crash stories, but the thing that had happened a few years earlier with your, the, the sort of destruction of, of, of your company. Uh, one thing that I can't remember, uh, is how you even managed to recover from that. Uh, it's worth, again, I, I'm happy to stay very much on the subject of, uh, music and the arc of your career. But I, I will say I found that story very inspiring for it, its demonstration of resilience when you shared it. So what's the capsule summary of what happened there for the sake of our listeners? Um, and we'll need to do the Reader's Digest because I just glanced at the clock and, and I've, I've got another thing I got to run to here in a minute. But um, the full story you can get it gets its own chapter also <laughs> in the memoir. It's well worth reading because when you when you blogged about it or what you kind of shared online uh, kind of an article uh, detailing it, it was moving. I mean, it really affected me. But the, the capsule – so here, tell you what. You can either give the capsule summary or I'm happy to say go read the book because I also really just want to get some sense of that arc that led you to all this to begin with because right now we, we, we jumped straight into the deep end and, and I would feel derelict in my – my duties as sort of periodic host of this to not give a sense of what led you to all of this. So take your pick on which subject, since I know you, I, I, I don't know how much time you have left in, in absolute terms. So I, I leave it to you. Um, let's quickly summarize the huge sound post-production thing. Um, a man who ran an investment company, this is a very short version, um, offered to buy my business. And thinking as a businessman, like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, I had done some things to build up value in, in my business, um, copyrights that I owned, um, equipment, nice equipment, quality equipment. But didn't you have a full it. recording studio and everything? I mean, it's yeah. So it was a lot of stuff. I sold my business. He had purchased a big building in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, it had been a media building. Uh, we took it over to transform it into what we hoped would be, you know, basically the the nicest studio between New York and L.A., right? Just like state-of-the-art everything. And we got pretty close to that. It was a beautiful facility. We had composition. We had an orchestral recording stage. Um, we had sound design. We had uh, picture editing. It was a true post-production house. Um, things percolated along nicely for a couple of years. And then one day I showed up at work and there's cops and attorneys all over the building. We found out that this man who was running this investment company that 
was financing this undertaking, um, he had been running a Ponzi scheme for like, I don't know, 20 years, something like that. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars, all kinds of people defrauded. And within two or three days of that, um, we were all out on the street. And that was really already hard. But the worst part was that my copyrights, like to my Lord of the Rings music and some other things that I had built up over the years, my equipment was all tied up in the courts and the law firm would not let me have it. So I'm like on the phone calling my friends because I had a film score coming up like the next week. I'm on the phone. Hey, man, do you have any old computers, any old monitors, maybe an old uh, piece of um, an audio interface that, that I can do? And, you know, it's like it's mad scramble. And thankfully, generous friends did have old gear that they sold me at a good price. Um, and I was able to quickly kind of get back on my feet. Um, and I had a really good season, you know, for several years, um, after that, I had a lot of work and a lot of high paying work. And so things kind of turned out. I mean, I won't lie. When I drove down to that studio site a few months ago, and all that was left was a giant hole in the ground where they were going to build a parking structure for an apartment building. <sighs> yeah, it's devastating. That was, that was like a dagger to the heart. But anyway, that's a very compressed, short version of the story. It's just it's a it's a, it's a good story from the standpoint that um, I one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is. It gives me a chance by having these longer conversations instead of just sound bites for the sake of advertising the latest and greatest thing is it gives folks, particularly younger folks, a, a non-sugar-coated glimpse at all the things that can go right and wrong in yeah. this in this line of work. And you can put yourself out there and make yourself vulnerable. And sometimes you swing and it connects and it flies out of the park and you things go amazingly. And sometimes it turns out that it was a grenade coming over the pitcher's mound and, and it, you find yourself, you know, narrowly avoiding death. I mean, it's, it, it's, it can be, it can be so dramatic and, um, and you just happen to have a, a couple of stories that I thought, you know, these must be sort of recorded for the, for the sake of it. And, and, um, um, so look, I know you, I know you have to run. If you can give me also yeah. the the summary of of where what led you to this to begin with, just what made you fall in love with this at that young age? I know you were a pianist. You said a gigging pianist in growing up, but video game music is such a novel thing to wind up in as a profession. And I actually don't know the answer to this about you. Well, again, this is another chapter. <laughs> in the book. This is all I think just a big really, advertisement for the book. That's right. That's right. Go buy the memoir, right? Making it huge in video games. Um, you'll get a kick out of this, but don't judge me too harshly, Austin. Um, all my opinions are formed. You're fine. <laughs> I was making music uh, for the advertising industry, and a friend of mine said, hey, 
my favorite video game company just listed, just posted a listing, a job listing for an in-house composer. You should take a look at it. This was 1996. And I was offended. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a composer, you know, video game music. Why? That's just, dee, 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 right. And he said, Chance, you write jingles for car companies. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> advertising is not normally where most people get to stretch their wings as artists, particularly. He says, come over to my house and, and I'll show you some stuff. And I went over to his house and he booted up Gabriel Knight, which was um, a little bit of a masterpiece in its day. And in the middle of Gabriel Knight is 30 minute opera or a 20 minute opera. And although the musical um, accompaniment of this opera was all DLS samples, probably played on an MT32, I saw some enormous potential. And I thought, I'm going to follow up on that lead. And I did. I applied to Sierra Online, um, met Jason Hayes, among other people, uh, the, the Blizzard composer mm -hmm. who was working at Sierra yep. on the time. He was there in the interview. Um, got hired, um, ended up doing the score for Quest for Glory 5, which won Music of the Year. It was one of the world's first music scores with a live orchestral score and interactive digital audio based on a simplified system that myself and a programmer designed. So from the very beginning, uh, when I first stepped into the video game industry door, I was captivated by quality and technical innovation. Those two things captured my imagination and have driven me you know, for the next 25 years. That's actually a magnificent bookend because it's not often that somebody's sort of first real substantive opportunity would mirror in a way their last, uh, <laughs> well, first off, most of the time we don't really have, we don't, we don't have the luxury of choice of what turns out to have been our last work. It just usually yeah. ends up being, well, whenever I died, whatever I did yesterday was the last one. As it turns out, that typically is how that goes for composers. You just hope it's finished. Uh, yeah. but, um, but that's actually amazing that, that, um, I'll have to go back. I was such a fanboy for Sierra, both the Sierra and the LucasArts adventure games of the nineties yeah. was absolutely had my, had my heart. That's what, that was what gave me that drive to join the industry because I saw that the storytelling potential in them as an art form, um, uh, but I'll, I'll have to go back and, 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 and take a look at quest for glory five and remind myself, uh, what you did, but that, that, that's a fantastic book. And, uh, look, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, it's only semi ironically that I say this has all been one elaborate <laughs> advertisement for your book, because, uh, honestly you, you've had a, you've had a pretty storied career. We didn't even get to talk about spending time with James Horner. And uh, your yeah. experience with Avatar, uh, I, I absolutely love that you Lord got to have Rings. that. He's a composer. Lord uh. of the Rings. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, some pretty, some pretty serious um, achievements, professionally, musically, the whole, the whole bit. Um, but as somebody who is just subjectively obsessed with interactive music, I couldn't not spend the bulk of our time on this grand finale, kneecapped as it was, regardless. <laughs> Uh, of the settlers. So thank you for that. Um, 
Absolutely. Any final really parting good. pearls of wisdom, uh, sir, before I let you go? Oh, no, no. It was just a great time hanging with you. And um, I, I love your interest. Great questions. I thought we had a wonderful discussion. And I, I hope people will enjoy it. I'm certain they will. I uh, now that now that uh, ironically you're busier than ever with all your traveling. But I was going to say now that you're retired, I will finally take you up on that offer to go hiking in uh, in Utah one of these days. Yes, uh, yes. And, nice um, canyon, brother. I think about that all the time, uh, and uh, I've just not been very good about carving out big enough windows to make it happen. But you you definitely uh, inspire me to to take that more seriously. So, uh, but in the meantime. Uh, thank you again for this and, uh, and we'll see you if not in Bryce Canyon, then in Iceland or Bangkok or wherever in the world we find our paths cross. That's right, brother. All right. Take care, Austin. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.